Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Bodywood, the podcast where we talk about movies, all kinds of movies, some good, some bad. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... I'm so disappointed that you didn't lead in with an Elvis-style intro. Yeah, what's going on? Do I... one shot, Steve. The one shot we had to do uh, an Elvis I Vegas was de- intro. Deliberately not going to do that because it is cheap, it is tacky, it's easy, and I, I think, quite frankly, I'm above all that. Tell the audience who you are. Come on, place your bets. Tip your waiter, hail to the king, and try the veal. I am Andrew Roger Carson, co-host of Partywood, along with the lavishly ravishing Steve Hester. <laughs> yes. This week, everything's legal in Partywood, as we're going to start off with 3,000 Miles to Graceland, straight out of the box from last week. Yes, a few weeks ago, well, a few episodes ago, I should say, we tackled the fate of franchise pictures the infamous movie studio uh that were associated with warner brothers in the early 2000s late 90s and uh, one of the movies that got brought up was Three Thousand miles to graceland and i did say oh i kind of like the premise behind that i wouldn't mind watching it and lo and behold it got dragged out of the box and so here we are so what do we have we have first of all we've got Quite a good cast going into this. Uh, let's just reel off some of these names. You've got Kevin Costner. You've got Kurt Russell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Bokeem Woodbine, Christian Slater. Um, you've got Thomas Hayden Church, uh, Sidney Pollock. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Pollock. <laughs> Kevin Pollock, not Sidney Pollock. I knew it was a Pollock. Massive Pollock. Um, Jackson Pollock. Yes, that too. Um, so, you know, you have... In this movie, a pretty stack. solid, yeah, it's a stack. It's a solid uh, lineup of workhorse actors. You know that you're going to be able to get some good performances out of these people. Um, and the premise itself of the movie is quite entertaining. You have a group of criminals who decide that they're going to rob a casino during a Elvis Presley impersonators convention. I mean, what would be the better way to try and sneak in and uh, disguise themselves as they carry out their nefarious crime than to be surrounded by all other people that look and dress like the king? However, that is pretty much all within about the first half hour of the movie. Yes. Yes. And part of me was was expecting to have more along the lines of an Ocean's Eleven kind of heist, which also came out the same year, actually. Yes. 2001. Um, but no, the, the first half hour is the robbery. And then following on from that, there is a betrayal from Kevin Costner's Murph character as he decides that he wants to take all the money and leaves the rest of the crew for, de- for dead. However, yeah. Kurt Russell's Michael character, he is, he, he did get shot, but, uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't kill him. And then he takes the money and runs and it then becomes a chase across the States now, the setup itself is okay. However, what you have here in terms of what kind of movie it is, is you have lots of ingredients which sound like they're going to work, but they don't gel together properly. That yes. is probably the kindest way that I can think of to describe it. It's nowhere near funny as a comedy. There's not nearly enough action for it to be an action. There's long stretches where nothing really happens. 
things just kind of happen for the sake of them happening and then have no real kind of bearing on the plot. Um, and the whole thing doesn't feel like it, it needs more energy going into it. Yeah. yeah. I, I've got a bit of a, a different take on things here. Now, for starters, I do want to say, and this was the whole problem of going into the, the certified rotten realm, is I don't really like shitting on other people's movies. No. You know, being a director myself, I understand the conflicts that can come into it. It, And I understand it takes a village. Sometimes that village is filled with people who want to be the mayor. Yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to know if this picture suffered from that very scenario. It certainly could be, because you, I think you've got the two of them butting heads off screen as well as on, haven't you? But potentially, from what I heard, I mean, yeah, it does feel like two different movies clash together. Mm. Uh, the rumour mill, apparently, is that Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner did have a lot of influence. Uh, they didn't write the script, but I think they had a lot of influence, maybe on the edit, I'm not sure. But they both had different tones in mind for the movie. Costner wanted it more of an action movie, uh, and apparently Kurt Russell wanted more of a comedy movie. And I think this is why, realistically, when you look at this movie, it's amazing that half of the plot of this movie relies solely on coincidence. A lot of it does, yeah. Yeah. And if anything, I feel that Damien Lichtenstein, who is the director... Which doesn't I mean, sound like a real name, does it? <laughs> it, it sounds almost like an Adam, Alan Smithy kind of thing. Well, no, trust me, he's, yeah. he's a real guy, and he's you know he's he's quite a celebrated music director, you know, a music video director, and I think this was his first feature, and obviously franchise pictures like to push people out there. Mm-hmm. Roger Christensen, <clears throat> uh, Roger Christian, even, um, and put them in these big movies, and I think this was going from maybe uh, small independent stuff with no real name talents and music videos straight to was a $64 million movie with pretty much nearly every major role filled with a name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were names at the time. So I do feel kind of bad that, I, I, I mean, Damien Lichtenstein is not a name that is up there with, you know, a lot of directors of the 2000s who has elevated highly. Yeah, I don't I don't even think it's necessarily down to the direction because there are some moments which work quite well. I think it's there there are huge gaps of internal logic consistency within yes, the script there, like there is for, admittedly. Like yeah. for example, um Cheryl Courtney Cox, um at one point she just takes off with the car with all the money, leaving her son yeah. alone. And then later on, she's crying about it. Well, that just yeah. points that she's a shitty mum. And then later on, she's all kind of crying. And it doesn't I, feel I do. like there's any kind of redemption art going on there. I, I will admit, the women in this movie are incredibly weak. Yeah. And full of holes. Courtney Cox's character, it is unsympathetic in the least. It's actually a really unlikable character even mm. when they try and portray her as a good character. And I think it gets uh, worse as it goes on. It does, she does get worse. At the beginning, you can kind of think, okay, she's she's just looking out for number one, but then the more and more that it goes on and the more and more decisions that she makes, you think, no, no, I don't like her. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to backtrack here because I am going to come back to this on another point. So when I watched it again today, I did spot some things that me as a writer and director 
it did kind of sit kind of funny with me. Mm. Okay. But I'm going to say the first thing, as soon as I start this movie, you've got the, the glorious Warner Brothers logo. They're doing well at the moment, aren't they? Yes. Wonderfully. <laughs> so you've got the glorious Warner Brothers logo. You think, oh, great. Then the Morgan Creek logo comes up. And suddenly you're like, uh-oh. This isn't Robin Hood. No, this isn't Robin Hood. It's still using the music. But, it's I not guess, even Ace Ventura. And yeah. I, I guess Kevin Costner and Christian Slater are in it, so it could be. And then the third logo comes up in its franchise, and you're like, oh, God, what can follow this? I can tell you what follows this. The worst CGI scorpions you will ever see outside of an episode of VR Troopers. I honestly thought that while that was happening, it was going to kind of pull back, and it was going to be like on a Game Boy or something. (laughs) I honestly thought that was going to happen. But then, no. It it even comes back at the very end. Yeah, it... I was watching it before, I was like, oh, even for 2001, that's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty bad considering what was going on on Power Rangers at the time. Mm. I mean, that was kind of the, the sour start of it. But I, I can see where the appeal of the movie was working. Mm. Obviously, you had Ocean's Eleven coming out, and I think the biggest problem with 3,000 Miles to Graceland, I mean, one, the way it was advertised made it seem a lot better movie. Yeah, you know, it made it feel like you were about to see an Ocean's Eleven. You know, it was all going to be the setup to the crime and stuff like that. No, as you said, the crime's over in the first twenty minutes, and it is the most unplanned robbery I think I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, the, the the you want there to be more. You want there to be more of the planning. You want them to be scoping the place out. You want them to be putting all their pawns in the correct places on the chessboard before they actually go for the checkmate. But they don't. They just walk in all together. Kevin Costner assaults someone which is a great way to draw attention to you, then they all go off together, walking very, very closely together with instrument cases through a casino with serious expressions on their faces. Yeah. Casinos don't pull any punches. Even if there Uh, is a conference, they would have been eyes on them right from the very beginning. Yes. They don't react when Kurt Russell decides that he's going to spray the uh, the camera in the elevator. And of course, Bakeem Woodbine... The black guy dies first. <laughs> it's not even a horror film. No, it isn't. I mean, it feels like, and I don't know if it was, but it feels like it was maybe marketed towards Ocean Eleven style mm. movie, and that's what hurts it because it's not a heist movie; it's a Fallout movie. Yeah, no, pretty much ninety minutes of this movie is after the crime, which doesn't seem to have any Fallout really. And people say, okay, well, Kevin Pollock and Thomas Hayden Church, and they feel like two characters who were added into it as they, a request. They of feel reshoots. like they're from another film. Yeah, and Christian Slater, Christian Slater, I love. I think he's still one of the greatest actors, and I think there's so much mileage left in him to be uncovered. But he feels like he's in a better movie. Mm. He feels totally separate from this movie in the scenes he's in. And it's almost like, did he feel this was a different type of movie going in? But in saying that, there's a great appeal here in seeing the two competing Wyatt Earps face off against yeah. each other. Tombstone and Warner Brothers Wyatt Earp, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, were played by Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner. And Tombstone was the better movie. Sorry, Bill. Uh, I mentioned about Courtney Cox's character, and I can't really get around talking about that sex scene. Uh, yeah, it starts off kind of funny, 
um, and they're doing a position that I've never seen before. The next thing you know, her son, who's like about 11, 10 or 11, crawls yeah. into the room while his mum is being screwed by a complete stranger to steal the guy's wallet. And the that thing is, says he's to not me, even phased by no. it. So that means he's done he's this, seen this many before. times before. It's like, oh, mom, it's like the fifth guy this week. Okay, fine. I'll just help myself. I'll go get the gun. Um, no, she's she's a terrible in this. She's a terrible mom. Uh, you really can't trust the character at all. With uh, a terrible kid, to be honest. Yeah. The most annoying child in movie history. He's an unlikable child. Yes. You, you actually want something bad to happen to him just to get him out of the film. But yeah, going back to Kevin Costner and um, Kurt Russell, both of them I love. Yeah, and I I think that um, if you look at some of Kurt Russell's characters, they all do have that kind of slight, you know, swaggering charm to them, the likes of Snake Bliskin and uh, the character that he played in Overboard. I can't remember what the the name of the character was, but they all have this kind of like this charm, this swagger to him. So that suits him. Kevin Costner doesn't suit being the villain. He suits more being that like father figure that he was in. Um, Man of Steel, that Jonathan Kent kind of look. Well, to be honest, no, I'm, I'm going to go against that a little bit. Uh, I mean, in this, he definitely went in a different place mm-hmm. than he is used to. You know, he, he was playing, I think you've only got to see the wombat scene to <laughs> really appreciate yeah. how far out of his comfort zone he went. But um, you know, I, I remember seeing him in Mr. Brooks, right, where he is basically, he's playing... I don't even know if you'd call it an anti-hero. He is a serial killer in the movie, and it, it kind of, I guess, predates Dexter a little bit by a year or so. And he is fantastic in that role. But in this, I think it called for... I don't know. There, there's something off about it, but I think it is because we are so used to seeing Kevin Costner in that dependable, mm. American boy, lovable guy. You know, it, it's... If Kevin Costner's in a movie, we can depend on Kevin Costner. We're right behind him. Mm. He's like the more Housewives choice Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the Hallmark Channel Tom Hanks. Um, <laughs> Don't let him hear you say that. No, no. The other thing is, I like Kevin Costner. And I was actually really, 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 really chuffed when his career started to uh, end up on the, the upturn again during the uh, the, the 2010s. Because I I like the guy, I I like yeah, I like his I performances, do. and I think the two of them, the two of them are good. There is a good movie here. There is a good movie. It's like the pieces are in the wrong order. Yes, and there's too many Dutch angles for my liking. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of Dutch angles. That that's my pet peeve. I think there's a call for Dutch angles at certain points. Mm. You know. But franchise pictures used to do it a lot. The movies were just filled with Dutch angles. It just takes you out of the movie. In I, some I think I actually noticed them for the first time about 10 minutes in, 20 minutes in. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. There, there is a lot of them. Um, and funnily enough, the, the directors of photography of this have gone on to do a lot of the Marvel series recently. But I haven't noticed as many Dutch angles on them. So I think it might just be a, a prerequisite of... Uh, franchise pitches i think it's a movie that you're not supposed to like but you do find some charm mm, in it yeah a big problem for me it's an elvis themed movie with only one elvis song in it no there's two no there isn't 
there's the one which is in the that, that he's playing um uh oh what a night but there is yeah. another one that's that's later on i'm sure there is not well, not sung by elvis so the only one that is officially sung by elvis is uh such a night yeah. which is an amazing tune and probably the most perfect tune for that scene because i was so into that scene where they introduced the convention following what felt like a two-minute time-lapse sequence of Las Vegas that didn't seem to end. I think the guys must have said, I love Koyanis Katsi. I want to do one better than that scene and just have these constant time-lapses going on, which is fine. But after a minute, you were like, oh, God, is this is ending. I'm starting to feel a bit sick. But uh, the rest of the soundtrack is um, the ultimate mixed bag. It has that swordfish techno going on, which I don't think really works with a movie like this. I don't know George Clinton. He's he's more known for funk, you know. He's yeah. the, the funk all stars. Um, and I was expecting something, you know, a bit more slap bassy. Um, maybe even okay. It's the best thing that I can think of right now. But maybe something that was going to be a bit Seinfeldy, almost. <laughs> you, you know, something that was going to be more like bang 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 bang. But no, it it is all very very rough, hard techno. Which is very reminiscent of like that kind of time period where you were coming off the back end of um, things like new metal and Limp Biscuit and stuff. So that was pretty much yeah. what was popular, and I guess it might also have been the, a way for them to distance themselves from Ocean's Eleven and that whole Rat Pack thing yeah. that was going to follow it around. This was the period where like movies started putting Uncle Cracker on their soundtracks. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, uh, are we not out of that phase yet? Oh, no, God. a couple more no. years to go. Okay. okay. I mean, it's entertaining whilst being uneven. That's the way I can put it. But the thing that I kind of appreciated while looking at it again recently, it looks and feels like a movie. It does. And a lot of the movies I see nowadays that are like shot digitally that don't so much feel like a movie anymore. This was shot on film, and you can tell the difference. I also think it's telling that it came so early in Franchise Pictures' run that it still looks, like you say, like a film. And you compare <laughs> this to, what did you say, it was about $62 million that was the budget for this? Uh, I think it was $64 million and it 64. made, I think, $18 million. Um, And yet you've got something like Sound of Thunder, which apparently had, apparently, in massive inverted commas, had uh, a budget of about $80 odd million. And we did discuss how that was uh, oh, yes. shrunk down afterwards. But there is no way that that movie that came out later had a similar budget or a greater budget than this one. Just no, no. no well, well, it's the whole inflated budgets talk that we had. Yes. Which uh, is kind of like uh, inflated subscribers, isn't it, Warner Brothers? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yes, again, about 3,000 miles to Graceland. Unfortunately, the week it was released... The two films it was beaten by at the box office because it opened at number three. I would have watched 3,000 Miles to Graceland more than Hannibal, which yeah. was a colossal disappointment for me uh, and many other people. Sorry, Ridley. And in second place was the Chris Mott movie, Chris Rock movie, Down to Earth, uh, which oh, was really? basically Heaven Can Wait remade, but not as good. Yeah, I remember that one coming out. No, it's it seems a shame really. Number opening at number 3 is nothing to be sniffed at. No, really, but um you think it would would suffer in the face of good competition, but come on. Come <laughs> yeah. On. I mean, th this movie also featured um 
Howie Long as the helicopter pilot character. We we had a small ice tea cameo that felt really pointless. Yes. But um Howie Long, that was during that process of like the the nineties and early two thousands when they would hire athletes to try and make them movie stars. You know, Brian Bosworth in our favourite Stone Cold, uh Dennis Rodman for uh double team, uh Michael Jordan for Space Jam, you know, and, and Howie Long was uh American football player, cut his teeth, I believe, on John Woo's Broken Arrow. Mm-hmm. And didn't do so bad no, in it. He was, was all right was in that good. With Christian uh, Slater. Yeah, yeah he, he had his first like lead role in a movie called Firestorm uh, by 20th Century Fox, where he was a, like a forest fire marshal and there's a robbery going on and these people get caught in between. And uh, it's 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 all right. It, it felt like a TV movie really than a theatrical, and it got released direct to video here in the UK. And then this is the third thing I remember him in. One thing that I that I did notice is there's a scene where Costner is he's filling in like a Cosmo quiz, um, and one of the questions is something like, uh, uh, "Have you had rough sex with a man?" And he pauses for a minute. And then circles, yes. Now, early on in the film, uh, he talks about Jack, who's uh, uh, Howie Long, um, and how, you know, he's getting a share because he's done loads of stuff that you don't even know about. Oh, and okay. then he's and then he's quite tearful about it when he gets shot at the end. So, in my head, ah. that's what I reckon. I reckon those two probably had a prison romance at some point. Ah, I never picked up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really oh, a little, little bit more deep character there. Yes, deep character work. I wonder if there's. It'd be interesting to know what additional scenes were cut out of this movie. Mm. Uh, hopefully, Damien will come onto the show at some point one day and and fill us in on the, his side of the story of of this movie. Um, I feel this movie would have been better viewed as a parody of how late nineties violence movies were. You know, such as those by Tarantino. I think if this film leaned a bit more into just taking the piss a bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel that, unfortunately, it veered itself more into that formula, like so many other movies did. And it almost follows that kind of Tarantino-style vibe that every, and I don't care what they say, every movie or studio was trying to do. And it reminds me of um, a movie called Back to Back, which had Michael Rooker as the main star. And it was released in the UK as American Yakuza 2. We have mentioned this too on Frank's episode. But it was so obviously pandering to that Tarantino cool dialogue vibe. And I think this was among those last movies that really tried to cater towards that kind of slot. Yeah. I mean, but, even right at the beginning, just the speed of the delivery was so fast that it felt like they were deliberately trying to just cram as much dialogue in there to try and sound as witty as possible, as intelligent as possible, as clever as possible. Yeah, I mean, there's a cacophony of great ideas in this movie. Mm, there is. There is. For on, I don't think the movie really should have been two hours and ten minutes long. I think they could have shaved it down to an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, if if you were to kind of recut this movie, I think it would have benefited it. Yes, because there's there's a few scenes like when uh, the cop stops Murph and he's doing like all the fast draw stuff that just suddenly comes out of nowhere. 
He just yeah. pulls he just pulls him over for no reason. Uh, Murphy picks up a woman after killing a guy at a gas station for no reason, and then she leaves for no reason. And you think, okay, no, just jettison all that, streamline it down. Just tighten everything up. You can show that Murph's an arsehole in other ways. You can show that Courtney Cox's relationship with a kid by tightening up certain scenes that are going on over here. You don't need to... There's a lot of bloat in it. And I think this is one of those movies, like you say, do a recut. Even now, lose about 25, maybe 30 minutes, and you would have a really tight movie that would work so much better than what we currently have. Yeah, I know movies like these, I mean, probably have a huge amount of footage in the vault from other characters. And I feel there was a lot more from Slater, Arquette, and Bokeem. I'd like to think there was a lot more prior to leading up to that robbery. And I think major elements of Courtney Cox's character should be phased out. Mm. How you do that with keeping like those scenes is kind of hard. John Lovitz, and I love John Lovitz, but he is really kind of expendable. Yeah, yeah. And I felt there was so much more that could have been done on him. Uh, and stand out for me, the gas station abused daughter. Yeah. How amazing is that actress? I know. She should have got so much more screen time. I think she was like a lost gem in this movie. I had a feeling it, when I first saw it, it was going to do the whole... Uh, the Getaway. If you ever saw the movie The Getaway, either version of it, there's uh, Steve McQueen's version or the Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger version. Uh, and there's a Meg Tilly character who ends up getting kidnapped by Michael Madsen and then she ends up with him. And I always thought that was going to be along those lines. But no, she's she's brilliant in every scene that she's in and she's not in it that much. No, no, she's only in a couple of scenes. But yeah, uh, before we move on, what are your final thoughts on this? I so wanted more of it. I really did. But more in a sense that trimming out a whole lot of it and tightening it up a bit. Yeah. It's a film that if it did have a recut, I would watch again. Yeah. You want more by wanting less. Yeah. Ice-T I felt was completely wasted because he was literally only in it for the last bit. He does get one killer joke when he's asked if he wants a sandwich. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a stupid, yeah, why not? But uh, it works. Um, I want more Elvis. Yes. The film was sold to me as like a, an Elvis caper. And although there's a lot of allusion to Elvis in a lot of scenes, you don't get a lot of that Elvis caper. And that's the most disappointing thing. It lasts a song. Yeah. Well, I, I'm in total agreement with you. I think there's, I think there is a good movie here that it has a lot of potential. Just get a recut going. Be properly brutal, and but uh, and and it could it could lose a lot of the weight and just be a much stronger film. I think. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Well, that was your three thousand miles to Graceland. Yes, it was. And now I guess it's time to move over to the anniversaries. Oh, why not? Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Ah, yes, the anniversary section where we 
delve into the movies released of yesteryear. Some you know, some you don't know, some you may want to revisit, some you may never want to see again. But they're all here and they were all released within this week over various years. Steve. Yes. We're going to start here with one of the most infamous movies of the 1980s. Ooh. Ooh, infamous. Ooh. Ooh, I like the sound of infamous. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Well, on this week in 1987, was it seven? I think it's 87 or 88. I've lost the date already. Fatal Attraction was released. Ah, the bunny boiler. Funny enough, that is always going to be associated. That movie is. actually coined the term bunny boiler. Yeah. And, it's, and we all know one. Uh, yeah, some of us have dated one. Um, yeah, oh, I'm not even. I'm not even following on with the line I was going to give. No, nope. um, uh, no, I I have seen this, but I've only seen it the once many many years ago. Um, I, so, yeah, it's 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 a disturbing film brought on by one one man's uh, failed attempt to keep his penis inside his trousers, uh, and unfortunately, he lets it out at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person, and it comes back to haunt him. Realistically, do you need to see it more than once for it to have its effect? Not really, no. Well, I will say, this was directed by um, a a fantastic director by the name of Adrian Lin. Now, it's among the Mount Rushmore for him, for me, uh, along with Flashdance. What a feeling. Indecent Proposal, I will Mm -hmm. throw up there as well. But his number one, my favourite movie of Adrian Lin has to be Jacob's Ladder. Okay. The original Jacob's Ladder, because it is a freaking masterpiece. Is that the one horror. with Eric Roberts? Eric, Eric Tim, Robbins? F- fucking Tim, Tim Eric Robbins? Roberts. Tim Robbins. Tim Hawkins. Eric fucking Roberts. I, can, I, I can't remember. I know that he's married to Susan Sarandon. That's it. That's all I know. <laughs> he makes donuts. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, Fatal Attraction. I guess it's, that's the movie that really elevated Glenn Close as a major Hollywood star. Mm. And it was around the time where Michael Keaton was kind of contemplating, you know, winding his career down. He's still with us. He's still making movies to this day. But I think uh, it, it followed a succession of movies and then it kind of exploded with Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, all the way to Falling Down. And I think all yeah. in that process between all those movies, he was getting ready to wind down. And falling down was the one that convinced him, "I'm not going to retire." You know, this is this is too good. Yeah, it's a great film. It is. It's yeah. it's an amazing. I watched it again just recently. I think it's one of those movies I have to watch once a year. I just love that moment at the end where he's like, going, "I'm the bad guy." Yeah, it was uh, one of those really sympathetic characters, but you don't know why you're sympathetic towards mm. them. But right. I have been to most of those locations where that movie was shot these days. I think it's because there's lots of things that he goes through that we kind of identify with ourselves and the annoyances like traffic and, you know, you, you go for a burger and it's advertised as being like two inches thick and you get something that looks like it's been sat on for a week. You know, there's little minor annoyances which kind of pile up through day-to-day life that all of a sudden just kind of just, you want to explode, but you can't. Yeah, he does. Anyway, this isn't talking yeah. about fatal attraction, is it? No. I think it's one of those movies that also makes you forget you're talking about Fatal Attraction. <laughs> Sorry, Adrian, we were talking about your movie. It will not be ignored by you, Andrew. <laughs> well, Fatal Attraction, it's an amazing movie. It really is. Uh, and it still holds up to this day. 
And it's weird in watching it again this past week. Um, I really miss Arn Archer. Where mm. are you, Arn Archer? Don't know. Why is Hollywood movies not putting you in those roles anymore? Now, I'm hoping you're not one of those actresses that fall to Hallmark, even though, you know, Hallmark has some great talent. But... Like Kevin Costner. Um... <laughs> I can imagine Kevin in one of those Christmas jumpers. Oh, God. No. Quick the candle shop. <laughs> Falling in love with a, an executive from out of town that's come to his sleepy, small, suburban home round about <laughs> to Christmas. To visit her mother. Yeah. Um, while watching Fatal Attraction. Which ending do you think is the best? Because it famously did have a reshoot ending. I did not watch the alternative ending. Mm. Uh, I've never watched it. I know it's been released on the DVDs and on the Blu-rays and all stuff like that. And I've never watched it because I never needed to spend any additional time with Fatal Attraction after seeing it. I think, yeah, it's it's the cheap jump scare. You know, one of the mm. most infamous jump scares outside of Carrie, I guess, or Friday the 13th. I guess that's what kind of classes it as a horror icon character because she does that jump out of the tub. I can't imagine that Glenn Close was chuffed with having to do that scene. No. It's like, oh, it feels a cop out. But to be honest, you know, it is what it is. I think it's more unsettling just her drowning in the tub. But I can understand why they go for that cheap jump scare. Yeah. I mean, I have seen the other ending and it... Oh, what happens? Feels very underwhelming. She basically kills herself, blames him, the police come and take him away. So it's the oh. difference between someone having their actions catch up with them versus someone who is then at the mercy of a psycho. Okay. Very well, different feel. Yeah, I don't think the 80s and a major Hollywood blockbuster was ready for that kind of downbeat ending. I no. guess they just needed... I mean, it worked today. Brilliantly. A24 is like, fucking love that. We're yeah. taking it. But um, I like Fatal Attraction the way it is. I don't necessarily need to see any other type of ending. The movie did what it did. It coined the term bunny boiler, as we have explained. Uh, introduced Fred Gwynn to the movies. Mm-hmm. Herman Monster was in this movie. Yep. And then he went on to do Pet Cemetery, And I don't know if he did any other movies after. Oh, no, he did My Cousin Vinny as the judge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's also yeah that he kind of like popped up here and there in tiny little roles because I know that I've seen him in other movies. Well, but damned if I can remember any of them. That poor guy had to live with that Herman monster thing forever. I know. And it doesn't help when you're starring in films with a kind of horror edge. But yeah, um, yeah, Fatal Attraction was a huge hit, and uh, it seemed like every woman wanted to see this movie and take their partner along in the day. Every woman wanted to rent this movie to sit down with their partner back in the day. And I'm not sure if that's to tell them this is what's going to happen or this is who I'm going to turn into. Yeah. I don't know. They're just all going, take no bitch. Yes. And uh, you guys can watch it on Paramount Plus, I believe. These days, if you have not seen it, you should watch it. It is. It's an amazing movie. It really is a, a, a tense thriller and the 80s were full of those kind of... I don't know if you class it as a steamy erotic thriller. Eh, well, it, it, it kind of was. It was It was like the, the more sensible precursor to all of those stupid things, like Basic Instinct and things like that. Yeah. I think watching it now, it speaks a hell of a lot more on the whole mental illness issue, mm. to the point where 
you're sympathetic with her in that sense. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting. For those of you who do go out and watch it for the first time, send us some uh, send us some notes on Facebook or on Twitter or anything like that. Let us know anything you pick up from it, what you feel about it. We want to know. Engage with us, people. Yes, we like it when you engage with us. At Poddywood. That's what you need at, to look for. At Poddywood, yes. Okay, yes. well, that was uh, 87. Let's jump to 97. Okay. Oh, dear. Uh-oh, what? Here's, here's a movie I had so much hope for. It's not Space Jam, and is it? No. No. It's the movie Spawn. Oh, God, yes. New Line Cinema. New Line. Uh, Before Lord yeah. of the Rings made them good. <laughs> let's, well, yeah, let's be New perfectly Line honest. New Line were making good movies at this time, and Spawn had, you know... It was, was not it was one of them. When, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And the funny thing is, when you listen to the audio commentary from the filmmakers, their first line is uh, they're introducing themselves, and one of them says, and yes, this is all our fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, this sounds like there was so many ideas going in. And then Sp- I'm going to tell you here, Spawn, the comic book, the stories, it is not PG-13. No, it's proper rated R. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of the alternative Deadpool. And there are kind of similarities between both characters. <laughs> really, it's it's quite bizarre. Because um, Spawn also talks in the third person. Yeah. And has humorous lines. He is also... Massively scarred, yeah. He also wears a costume that is strikingly like Deadpool. With the in eyes, certain respects, yeah, yeah. Um, but Spawn was a much darker. It was talking about you know the the battle against hell and demons and all stuff like that. This was never meant to be a PG thirteen movie, and I was I was talking uh, with someone in the Sheen camp, and they said, "Oh my god, did you see that superhero movie my dad did?" Yeah, I, I'd actually forgotten that uh, Martin Sheen was in that. <laughs> you just mentioned that then, yeah. With the greatest die job I think I've ever seen him do. Oh god, um, yeah, he looked like uh, he looked like uh, Robert Patrick in Double Dragon. You got Michael Jai White, Black Dynamite himself, mm-hmm. and this was very early in his career. I think I'd only seen him in a very small part playing a a homosexual carjacker in Two Days in the Valley, and then he was an accomplished martial artist. And obviously, it impressed someone to the point that this guy could be Spawn. And it, it's not the kindest acting he has yeah. delivered. Yeah, but it, it, realistically, the character doesn't need anything more than that. The character no. needs you to be... It's not like Deadpool, where you do need to have that kind of really snappy wit rolling off the tongue. Spawn is dark. It's brooding. It's gruff. It's... And it's also filled with some really bad CGI for his day. Oh, um, shockingly bad. Yeah, shockingly bad in, in some areas. Um, and it also feels like it was taking that Batman and Robin approach at some point where it's like, mm-hmm. we need some toys. Let's have him make this motorbike into this weird cocoon type thing. Yeah, and that, then they had a field day as well with John Leguizamo. And- uh, right. I've got to admit, he was giving it his all. Oh, he probably was, but the 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 problem was he was giving it maybe too much, or or yeah. everyone wasn't giving it enough. So he properly stands out, and I'm not entirely sure it's for the right reasons. 
because yeah. yeah, his performance is brilliant. It's definitely he's definitely the center of attention every time that he's on screen. But because everyone else is so kind of low key and more flat, it comes across sometimes as overwhelming. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point actually. Leguizamo absolutely is having the time of his life. Oh, he, he properly is nails it. up to fifteen on the one to ten scale. Yeah, right. To where every other person is seriously outacted. Yeah, uh, and you know there, he's trying to some... make up for Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. So, oh, you're done like my Luigi Mario, eh? And he's, he's Puerto Rican. He's not even Italian. And he's still carrying over some of that Luigi. He, he was like, "Oh, I've done my Benny Blanco from the Bronx. Now I'm going to get to play a really fat clown in a clown suit." And he's a natural comedian as well. Yeah. So he was obviously very at home with it. I think he realized, oh, I'm not going to take this too seriously. I mean, look what we've got to work with. Let's just have some fun. He knows it's kind of aimed at kids, so he's bringing the booger jokes and the fart jokes. Yeah. You know, and, and I think... He's Michael really... Myers in it. Yeah. I yeah, think, think that would be fair. Michael Myers or Mike Myers. <laughs> Mike Myers. Yeah, not yeah. Michael Myers. Well, though, he's, I don't know. He, I think he kills a few people in the film, so yeah. Yes, I've never seen Michael Myers in Halloween, like, lighting his fart. <laughs> I'd pay to see that. Um, yeah. He lights his, lights his pumpkins with a match. He's, he's a funny guy, and I remember hearing... I've seen one of his stand-up shows on, on Netflix, and I quite enjoyed it. But I do remember hearing that he was basically kind of crouching throughout the whole time he was in that outfit. Yeah. So he he's like his knees were just pretty much ruined by that movie because he was kind of squatting down almost to fit into the suit. Yes. So that must have been really uncomfortable for him as well as hot and sweaty and you can't hear a damn thing because you've got a load of latex foam all around your head. So that can't have been a pleasant experience. So seeing how much effort he put into it Speaks volumes yeah. about him as a performer. I mean, let's face it. The 90s was very hit and miss with comic book movies. I mean, you look back at all the comic book movies of the 90s compared to what you get nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different game. It's a crap show. Altogether. Yeah. Right? You know, th- this is when executives were pushing out the movies that they thought these comic books were. And they were like, oh, we don't want any expert opinion on them. We're just going to make our own versions of them. Let's make it the toy lines, yeah. I mean, Spawn, it's one of those movies, if it's on, I will watch it. Because I think deep down, I'm like, I really want this to be a better movie. I mean, nothing against the director, uh, Mark A.Z. Dip, his name. That's, that's the most initials I've ever seen in a name. Mazd, I'm sure, was his name. But um, when you look at his resume, I mean, he was into visual effects. That was where his background was, so he did... Visual effects on Jurassic Park, okay. The Abyss, and The Hunt for Red October, and a whole load of movies like that, you know, really accomplished in that field. And it must be so disheartening for all those visual effects to be so undersold by this movie. Well, I think if you are the one that's actually making those visual effects versus actually directing the movie, because I don't think he actually did the visual effects himself, that would have been farmed out. So I can just imagine him as the the crunch is coming down and they're having to rush everything out and meet the deadline and he's probably being given countless notes by the studio executives oh it's got to have this it's got to have that you need to do this you need to do that we need to make a toy out of this and then this 
abomination, even for the mid-90s. This abomination of a CGI fight sequence comes through. Yeah, your oh. heart must have just dropped out of his chest, especially if he's there thinking, I made those raptors in Jurassic Parks. Terrifying. The one that really, really gets me is the beast down in hell, mm. which is, I'm guessing, what the devil or whatever it is. That doesn't move its mouth. It's horrible. Yeah. Really is. And I'm not even saying that the dragons in Dungeons and Dragons like two years later were any better, but they were. <laughs> it's horrible to look at nowadays thinking, oh my God, you know, this this is like PlayStation 1 level graphics in a major motion picture. And I feel they might have been just rushed. Maybe they just couldn't get what they wanted. And it's like, oh shit, farm it out. Tell them like, they've got to make this beast. It kind of looks like this. And they just made this version that, Looks like something off Poppy Playtime. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know it's it's. Uh, it looks it's, like what you'd get if you shaved a wamper. <laughs> yes, actually, that's that's a good point. Yeah, you know, it, it's all this little wiry hair and the horns coming out and these big spindly arms and this wide open jaw screen. It's yeah, you know, it's shocking. Do you think that they should do a remake of it? Do a reboot? Well, they are planning a remake of it. And I know it's kind of in the development stages. It'll be interesting to see. I think it was scheduled to come out in 2023, mm. last I heard. But with all movies, everything's kind of just shifting dates nowadays. You can never rely on anything. Funny you mentioned that with The Beast. I never really made the connection that whatever made the voice of that beast may have also been the Cave of Wonders in Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it That's was the Frank same. That's Frank Welker all over, isn't it? Oh, was it Frank we Welker? It's got to be you, Frank. Yeah. No one does that deep voice better than Frank Welker. Yeah, or Shaggy. We know it's you. And I mean the cartoon Shaggy, not the shocker. Don't I don't mean him. Yeah, because Frank Sundra back to earth. Yeah, Frank Welker is the, the voice of Shaggy. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and Was that before or after uh, Matthew Lillard stole it from him? Uh sorry, not Shaggy. What am I talking about? No, Fred. Fred, it was Case, ah. Casey Kasem, uh, the, the radio DJ. Uh, he yes. was the voice of uh, Shaggy Rages. Yes, go back to episode 50 if you don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Spawn, it still holds a lot of pain to this day because I really wanted it to be good. And every time I see it now, I still want it to be good. And this was, like, released right around the same time as Mortal Kombat Annihilation Oof. from the same fucking studio. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. It, it was like a one-two punch of... Shite. Yeah, that's that's the double bill no one ever wanted. No, but yeah, uh, Spawn was released in 1997. Um, see it with extremely low expectations. Uh, you won't be disappointed if you're a Spawn fan. You will be disappointed. Yeah, uh, wait till they do a remake and completely balls it up again. Yes. Okay. What's next? Okay. Uh, under I mentioned here because it's not going in the usual timeline, but in 1989. Uh, in the US, at least, because the UK got it a bit later. Ridley Scott's Black Rain was released. Okay. Uh, yet again, I have seen this. It was a long time ago. I can't really remember that much about it, I'm afraid. Yes, the most Tony Scott-looking Ridley Scott movie yeah. ever made. Uh, I love this. I will go admit, I think it's one of the most undervalued movies ever made. I personally would have this as maybe the fifth head on... Uh, Ridley Scott's Mount Rushmore, because I always said, I've mentioned this before, I think The Martian, Blade Runner, 
Uh, Thelma and Louise and Gladiator are Ridley Scott's greatest contributions to cinema. No way. Controversial. I know. I'm going to get some shit for it. But that's my personal thing. But Black Rain, for me, is an amazing movie. It really is. Like I said, I it has been so long since I've seen this, I can't really talk about it because I can't remember much about it. I have seen it. I know he's like a cop in China. Is it China or Japan? Japan. Japan. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, th- this was probably among those titles that and- before Andy Garcia got really big. I know he was in The Untouchables and he was in, um, I think it was 8 Million Ways to Die or something like that beforehand. Oh. But this was a movie where it was a supporting character but really elevated him before he did The Godfather Part 3. Before you do actually move on, that has reminded me when you're mentioning The Untouchables. One, brilliant film. Two, the gun range scene um, as they're kind of panning across the backs of the, the, the people, the cadets that are all waiting to shoot the guns. One of the guys who's got his back to the camera is John Barrowman. Really? Really. And I remember this because on Children's BBC here in the UK, um, which used to wear between about half past three and 6pm on weekdays, uh, there was a program called The Movie Game. Oh, yes. Do you remember the movie that? Game, yeah. yeah. I do remember The Movie Game, yeah. And John Barrowman hosted that one years before he ended up doing Torchwood and all the rest of it. And oh, they... my God, yeah, he was the host of that. Yeah, and they oh, played that, that clip... Connection. They played that clip, and he was like, that's me in that film. <laughs> None of you kids can watch this movie. No, no, no. But that is me. Just to, just to let you know that I'm not just a game show announcer. Yeah, so anyway, that's that's my tuppence worth to show. He shared screen time with um, Andy Garcia. So, you know, you do like, a, what is it, six degrees of separation, seven degrees of separation. You can go from uh, Billy Piper <laughs> to, 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 I don't know, you find someone. Yeah, wow. Sean Connery, I that's, don't know. <laughs> that, that's an amazing piece of trivia that I would never have known in a million years. Yeah. Um, Black Rain, uh, I am going to tell every single person who has not seen this movie that you need to see this movie. It is really not even a pro-American movie. Uh, and it's not really a pro-Japanese movie either. But it has this weird situation between them where this movie is really able to grind down the American image as well as the Americans grind down the Japanese image, mm. you know, of, of tradition. You know, the American that goes in, he's he's seen as corrupt. He's seen as a, a loudmouth. He's seen how a lot of people kind of view Americans in a sense. People say, oh, you know, they're all, you know, marching John Wayne style, you know, think they're better than everyone else. Whereas the Japanese um, are pictured as very stoic, emotionless, very stoic, almost robotic-like. Yeah. And, you know, this this amazing uh, talk, this amazing scene where uh, a Japanese crime boss, when he meet up with Michael Douglas in the movie. Michael Douglas, again, he's leading the show, falling down, fatal attraction, black mm-hmm. rain. Where's it all going to end? Where they actually talk about how America forces its ideals on people and, you know, teaches the youth, you know, what is what they should be doing in great and and forcing all of the values on them and shunning the tradition that the Japanese have and how it affects the youth in Japan nowadays and things like that. And it's really deep. I'm thinking, wow, I've, I've never really seen a movie kind of grapple that in a sense. Mm. 
with with the meaning of these like two worlds together. And I think it's very undervalued in that sense. Because I love a lot of Japanese cinema. I love a lot of American cinema. I love a lot of cinema in general. You know, and this was a film that really did kind of touch on the meeting of both of these cultures. And I know someone out there is going to say, oh, well, The Last Samurai did the same thing. Well, yeah, in a way. But this was, what, a good 13, 14 years before that. What about Rising Sun? Well, that was 1993. And while a really good movie and undervalued, you know, I think that had more to talk on the whole racism factor. Yeah. Because that that film's so fueled by racism between black, Japanese, uh, the LAPD, everything. It's like, I don't think anyone likes anyone in that movie. But there's some beautiful connection here between Michael Douglas's character and um, the character of Moss, who is the Japanese detective. And they're at odds all the way through the movie because of their clash of ideals. And when they finally get together, it feels so genuine when they team up and the reasons why they team up. And you feel the weight of the Japanese detective who is going against his own code, you know, to bring this main villain into justice because the villain does not follow the Japanese code and he doesn't follow any code. He's kind of a a breakout of this American influence on Japan. Mm. And it's so, so well-structured. And it's an amazing script as well. I've read the script of it. And the way the script was put together is incredible. And I would venture anyone out there who has not seen this film or even hasn't seen this film in a long while to watch this movie and really look at the underlying themes. You know, it's, it's the trailer kind of sells it as an action movie. And it's not. It's an amazing character study and a social commentary movie. Uh, wrapped up in this thriller that is visually as well that the director of photography was Jean de Bont. Ah, there's a familiar name. Yes, way before um, scoring box office gold with yeah. Twister and giving us Laura Croft, Cradle of Life, and not much else afterwards. Black Rain was released in 1989, and seek this movie out. It is amazing. It really is. It's, it's in my top ten of favorite movies of all time. All right, awesome. Uh, is that is that the last one, or have we got one more? No, no, we've got two more, actually. Got two more? Oh, okay. Um, 1992, Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood's Unforgiven was released. Not seen it. Oh, you are missing out on probably one of the greatest Western movies ever made. The movie that completely went against the entire image of Westerns that Clint Eastwood had built up since the Spaghetti Westerns, uh, Fistful of Dollars, Good, the Bad and the Ugly movies, and every Western that followed. You know, this was the movie he came back. I think the last Western he did before this was Pale Rider in like 1985. Mm-hmm. And he came back to do this because it was a very mature script. And it's very anti-Western in a way. Because it's a story about um, a reward put out on these men who cut up a prostitute. So a bounty is put out by the prostitutes to bring these men to justice. You know, or take them out, kill them. Because the town sheriff, played brilliantly by Gene Hackman, uh, won't do anything. You know, he, he kind of lets them get off with it. So Clint Eastwood is kind of pulled out of his retirement. He's raising two children. His wife has died. And he decides, you know, they kind of need the money of this bounty. And he ropes in his old friend, Morgan Freeman. Um, got himself, so, yeah. Yeah, got himself. 
and they kind of go off in search to like take these men out and collect the bounty. But it's great because it speaks so much about the Clint Eastwood character. Like they regret the violence that they have made in the West. And it's almost like this fitting metaphor of Clint Eastwood saying, you know, all of these movies where I was just this guy going and shooting people off through the West mercilessly, is it something that he maybe regrets? Did he direct all these years? He did direct it, oh, yes. I thought he did. And it was a script, I believe, uh, originally it, it was doing the rounds, and I think it landed at Warner Brothers, and I think Clint Eastwood bought it from Warner Brothers because he really wanted to do it. Or it could have been it was owned by Sony, and Clint agreed to do In the Line of Fire to get this script. I think it was some kind of deal like that, if I remember rightly reading about it. And, you know, this was, it was the Oscar winner. Now, this this was ranked among the greatest movies of 1992. And we're going to do an episode shortly with Bill Daly, and we're going to reflect on the year 1992 at Warner Brothers, which had some amazing movies. And Under Siege 2, Erica Alaniac. Unforgiven is classed uh, as one of the greatest movies of all time. It may actually be the greatest Western of all time. Wow, now that's a very bold claim. If it is not, it is definitely right within that top five ranking. What about Blazing Saddles? <laughs> I think that more is a Western parody. Yes. but Still um, a Western! <laughs> it is amazing. I As soon as I got the big screen in my house, Unforgiven was among the first films I watched on it. And it was like I had seen this movie for the first time all over again. Mm. Because when I first saw it, it was 1992. I was a young teenager at the time. And I didn't really get all of the themes. But in watching it now, and having seen so many more of Clint Eastwood's Western movies and his movies growing up, this felt like it was the first really mature movie of Clint Eastwood's career. I think this was a fresh injection of life into his um, directing career. And obviously walked away uh, with the Oscars. I think it won Best Picture. Nice. And, um, you know, it also had great, uh, great turns from a lot of actors in there. Uh, Richard Harris is even in there. Ah, yeah, that people might remember as Dumbledore. Yes, Dumbledore. For two films. Uh, And it's great. He plays uh, English Bob, who is this character where uh, Sol Rubinek, the greatest Joel Silver lookalike in Hollywood, (laughs) <laughs> is um, to the fact that he even played a Joel Silver type in uh, True Romance. Uh, he's basically documenting him to make these comic books about the English Bob character. And it turns out that he's this real fake. And Gene Hatman knows he's a fake because he's taking credit for a murder that Gene Hatman had done right. or was there for. And Richard Harris is speaking like a proper English gentleman and then he gets like bitten down and there's one scene where his proper, like, rough Irish accent just comes out to really emphasise that it was just all an act. This character was. He was acting within an act. And it's just these really subtle moments like that that are great. And the ending of the movie, I'm not going to spoil it because you are going to watch this. This is going to come out of what's in the box when we refer back to the greats. Um, it's one of the most rewarding movies I think I've ever seen. Okay, awesome. So, finally, what do we have? Okay, finally, uh, I'm going to jump back to 1987 again. Uh, A movie was released called Best Seller, 
Have you ever heard of this movie? No. Okay. Not a lot of people have heard of this movie. And it's a damn shame because it's one of the best thrillers I think I'd ever seen. Uh, and I saw this on Sky Movies when it came out. And uh, I fell in love with this movie. I own it now, still to this day. And it was directed by a director by the name of John Flynn. Now, if you've never heard of John Flynn... Which I haven't. He, no. He was probably one of the most underappreciated directors uh, at all times because all of his movies were so tight. Really well-constructed movies and character movies. And when you look through his CV, he's worked through, with some of the greatest names. I mean, he's worked with Sylvester Stallone. He directed the movie Lockup, which was Sylvester Stallone in prison. Uh, not Escape Plan, the one he did with Arnie. But there was a movie he did in 89 where he had to, he was a prisoner, had to escape a prison that was run by Donald Sutherland. And it's a really good film for what it is. Also, he uh, he directed Steven Seagal's movie Out for Justice. Is that one of his good ones? That is actually probably one of his more high profile ones. Right. The one with more character. And I would love to have seen what the movie was like before Seagal probably changed a lot of stuff about it. But it was one of the most gritty ones. Uh, William Forsyth is absolutely amazing as the villain in it. And apparently there's lots more footage of William Forsyth acting his heart out in this movie that Steven Seagal had cut out of the movie. Big surprise. Um, he also directed a, a great Robert Duvall movie in the 70s called The Outfit. And also another movie in the 70s, if you can find it, called The Jerusalem File. Trust me, that they're, they're amazing movies you should check out. Bestseller. Uh, was a movie about, uh, well, it starred Brian Dennehy. Yes, that Brian Dennehy. Ever dependable in the 80s here. Uh, He played a police officer who was wounded in a robbery and becomes a best-selling author of crime novels. And years afterwards, uh, a character played by James Woods shows up, who is a mafia hitman. And this Mafia hitman wants Brian Dennehy to write his life story right, into uh, a novel. And it turns out that he was the one who shot Brian Dennehy during the raid. Oh, I'm liking the sound of this. Oh, it's, it's amazing. So all this time, they're having this bonding and, and, you know, they're not friends at all. But he's basically saying, you know, I will help you bring down, you know, one of the biggest people here that I work for. All you've got to do is write my book. And James Woods' character takes him through, like he takes him to locations of like where he'd done all of his hits, mm-hmm. you know, and all the people he took out and stuff like that. It is phenomenal. It is a phenomenally brilliant movie that people just have not seen. I recommend it to so many people. And after they've watched it, they're like, oh my God, how did I not know this movie exists? And it is an amazing film that you've got to find. I think at the moment it's on um, Amazon Prime's MGM channel. I think you can find it on there, but I'm, I'm sure you can find it on streaming somewhere. And it is packed full of great performances. The story is so well written. Uh, and it's a, it's a personal favorite of mine. As soon as I saw it was released in 87 this week, it's like, I've got to include it this week as an honorable mention. Uh, bestseller is a movie you have to go and see. Yeah, because usually, usually you kind of only have one from a specific year, but uh, this time around, gone back to gone back to that well a few times. It sounds like you pulled out a gem. Yeah, definitely, and I I recommend Steve. It's something, even though it's not on what's in the box, it's something that you should take the time out to watch. 
And maybe we can talk about it next week if you do get to see it. Okay, well, I'll try my best. Um, which means I'll probably end up video gaming because I'm a Philistine. Yeah. Oh. I've done so much video gaming recently. Um, I don't know what's going on with my life. <laughs> well, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's some brilliant ones out there. However, this is not a show about uh, video games. This is a show about movies. And we have one section left. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Ooh. Usually it's the part of the show that you all want to get to anxiously. Now, probably not so much. Yeah, I do always find it kind of weird that people really do love what's in the box and they really look forward to it. But I've had so many people saying, oh, why would you inflict that on poor Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've inflicted some other stuff on me, yeah. Casualties of war stands out. A year ago, when I pushed you off a bouncy castle. Yes. Available on the Facebook page for anyone who wants to see it. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that was a fun day, actually. Um, So anyway, uh, what's in uh, the bargain bin box? Yes, what's in the bargain bin box um, is the part of the show where previously uh, you would try and improve my movie education by giving us good films that uh, you were going to pull out of a box and then make me watch. This time around, we're going for the other end of the Rotten Tomato barrel. Uh, Andy is going to pull out the name of a film which is rated 25% or lower on Rotten Tomatoes. And then, just like before... If I have seen it, he's going to keep pulling out names of movies until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I'm going to go away and watch that before we record the next episode. And give your brutal feedback. Yes. Or you may even like it. You never know. I liked 8mm. Yeah. and You didn't think 3,000 Miles to Graceland was too bad, so... No. There's some stuff about it that worked. Yeah. This time, uh, if you haven't seen this, it's going to be a fucking challenge. Cheers. Steve. Yeah. Have you seen an American werewolf in Paris? Oh, no. Well, guess what? No. You're going to be watching an American werewolf, werewolf in, in Paris. Paris. Yeah. Oh, my God. This this feels cruel. Is there any Sitting... Jenny Agatha in it? No. Oh, it's got Julie Delpy, though. Okay. You know, the other stuff she does apart from the Before Sunrise <laughs> movies. <laughs> Sitting at 7% rotten. Oh. 7%. That is so close to it. Well, that's got to be right in the terrible. That's the lowest rated movie so far. Yeah, because how, how low was 3,000 Miles to Grenzland? Can you remember? That was, I think that was 18 or something like that. And I think 8mm was around about 23. Around yeah. about there, wasn't it? But yeah, we're sinking 7%. lower and lower. Jesus. Hey, you you thought of this concept of going, you know, into the green, but um, you're not going to thank me for this. Have you seen an American Wealth in London? I have, yeah. Yeah, in that case, it's going to be a really bad experience for you. (laughs) Holy shit balls. Okay. Um, So, yes, uh, next week on our audio episode, uh, of which we will be joined by Jonas Barnes, we are going to actually do... It's kind of a double review that week, because we are doing 
Day of the Warrior. Mm, yes, we are. Uh, we'll fill you in on that one as we get closer to the show, but this is a movie you can watch for free on YouTube, and uh, you'll thank us. Yes. Um, so while I go away and uh, lick my wounds, possibly with a with a silver spoon in my mouth, I'm going to say that is it now for this week's episode of Pottywood. Thank you very much for joining us. If you want to comment on anything that you've heard in the show, like we said earlier, you can hop over to Facebook, Twitter, uh, Reddit, or look for at Pottywood, and you'll be able to find us there. We want to know what you think about the subjects that we've covered this week. So do get in touch. Yes. Uh, for now, though, it is a goodbye from me. As a goodbye from me, too. Uh, we will see you on our next audio and a video episode. Please yes. join us. Uh, and if you want to check out the previous video episodes that we've done, then just hop over to our YouTube channel, Bodywood. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs> I can't believe it. That was so unplanned. I was saving that one for the end. Keep it all on. Keep it all on. That's what I say.